Hello, this is Dylan Lockwood, Z Prime's Senior Editor. On today's episode of On the Grid, I talk with Dr. Liz Doris, Center Director for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory's Joint Institute for Strategic Energy Analysis. We talk about key challenges to decarbonization projects, how to implement solutions, and the changes that the industry is undergoing as a reaction to a decarbonizing grid. Enjoy the episode. So, Dr. Liz Doris from NREL, welcome to On the Grid. Happy to have you here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you. Yeah, so why don't you tell us about your decarbonization work at the Joint Institute for Strategic Energy Analysis at NREL? Yeah, so uh, the Institute is a part of the National Renewable Energy Lab, as you mentioned, and it's a sort of forward-looking part of the lab. It's an institute within the laboratory. and If you have worked at NREL or if you are at NREL or you know about NREL, you might be thinking, isn't everything at NREL forward-looking? And the answer to that is yes. And then the Institute is really set up and has been set up since 2008 to think about the emerging challenges to decarbonization, but also more broadly, sort of a clean energy economy that you know, we are not quite, we need to be ready to address as they come up, but we're not quite working on right now. So we take a sort of, we have an internal investment arm where we can invest in our own staff and our university partners to um, take a look at what those issues might be. We do a ton of like workshopping and networking with diverse audiences to identify challenges for clean energy economy that are coming up. And uh, and we also manage the American MADE program, which is a wonderful program from the uh, Department of Energy, which is their prize program that delivers money to the ground for on the ground innovation and has a ton of new entrants that can give us new information about what types of challenges are coming up for them that become important to us from a research perspective. So that's the work we do. That sounds awesome. Um, Fun. So, so now that we're well into decarbonization shift on, on the grid, how have the challenges to a carbon-free grid evolved over time um, from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I love this. I love this question. I sometimes, I used to talk about in like the middle part of the last decade, I used to talk a lot about like the philosophy that NREL had from like the the early part of its life, right? Like the 1980, early 1980s through um, probably around 2000 was really like, oh, we have this great technology development. We're going to put it on the side of the highway outside of the lab and hope that as people go skiing or hiking, because we're in Colorado, so we're contractually bound to mention skiing and hiking, um, as, as you go by, you pick up that technology because it's neat, right? And because it's clean. And, you know, starting around the turn of the century, the lab really started to think about the additional challenges that like why the technology wasn't always getting picked up, right? And anybody in the energy efficiency field is well familiar (laughs) with this challenge, right? And how we think about getting technologies to market really started to become a part of our our DNA. We really started to incorporate that. So we moved from sort of technology to this market and policy and institutional challenges. How do we think about that interacting with our R&D work, right? Our research and development work. And I really credit the solar program at the Department of Energy with 
a lot of forward thinking about this. They did a lot of work early on on what they call balance of systems. And in balance of systems is basically everything but the technology. So like what else could be problematic? And that work for, for enabling the technology and that work really did open the door for thinking about how policies interact with different types of technologies and why science and policy have intersections. And so we really started to think about that for about the last decade, we've really been working through that. Then a bunch of challenges have come up as we've had more deployment, right? <laughs> like, how do you get thousands of little pieces of technology independently functioning onto a grid that was built for, you know, big inputs of energy from one location output to another location? And so how do we how do we think about that becomes an issue? So that's another technology issue, which is like a different one. And then the the pieces that I'm super interested in now and that the Institute is working on and that I think and our stakeholders think are really big deal are like what happens in with success of the grid, right? Or of grid decarbonization and of community decarbonization. And those challenges are like, we, we there are many of them. And I'm sure I've listened to many of the other people talk about uh, these things over the over the past podcasts. But the the ones we are focused on, there are four. And the first one is like hard to decarbonize sectors. The institute itself has been working on that for probably ten years, and so it's it's not new to the institute. It's not new to people in the field. I think, but we really try to think about and and you know we have the inflation reduction act that handles a lot of hard to decarbonize sectors but we really think about like heavy duty transportation and agriculture and manufacturing and things that are hard to electrify basically and what the what the role is there um we also look at issues like supply chain and supplies of clean energy technology and how we're thinking about like um and this is still in our hard to decarbonize vein like how are we thinking about what the technology will use when we're producing it at scale to make sure we're not running into like geopolitical challenges, which we all know can be a big challenge, a big roadblock for clean energy. So that's our first one. And then uh, the second piece that we really look at are like, what are the problems that come up when you have a lot of success of clean energy? So this is where we start to talk about the, the justice issues that the Department of Energy has been talking a lot about for the last few years. The way we think about those is kind of in this vein of like, um, how are we using federal investments to the benefit of all Americans, right? Because there's a lot of data. Um, there's some beautiful reports from um, Berkeley Lab in about 2012, 2014. We're talking about like, you know, there are disproportionate benefits for whiter and wealthier folks in the clean energy sector. And, you know, they're taking advantage of the technologies more, they're getting more of those clean air benefits. And that as because we're using federal dollars, the benefits should really go to all people. So that's kind of the frame that we come to. And how do we how do we think about that in a, a very mature energy sector? And then now even maturing clean energy sector, right? How do we think about those things? We also in that category of kind of these societal changes and society technology interface, we think about um, the conf we think about social acceptance. That's a huge one, right? How are we thinking about the building of large scale facilities, even if they're clean facilities in people's yards, right? How are we thinking about that stuff? And then also um, intersections with other systems, so food and water. 
um, are big deals for us in the Institute. And then the third one, and I'll get to the point, the third one is about uh, workforce. So I asked a couple of years ago, I asked one of our industry partners a couple of years ago, a couple months ago, I asked one of our industry partners, you know, at what point will workforce become the limiting factor in where you decide to build factories and manufacturing facilities for your renewable technology. And I thought they were going to say, you know, 2026, 2027, or hopefully 2035. And they looked at me straight in the face and said, 2021. And I said, oh, no. So we have like real workforce challenges having to do with a lot of different types of workforce and that's something that we're really trying to think about from the research perspective. How do we think about that from an R&D perspective and plan for future workforce, right? Because that's our job's R&D. And the last one is um, that we're working on is how do we do all of this uh, backwards and in high heels, right? Which is how do we do this in an adapting world? How do we do this when we're not entirely sure what the weather's going to be like? And we're not sure what kind of water system we're going to have. So how do we think about all of these multiple factors on this kind of changing substrate of climate adaptation? So those are the four big things that we're thinking about inside the Institute right now. All right. Well, that, that you, you covered a lot there. So I guess let's break those down one at a time. So we'll start with, we'll, we'll start with the, the workforce that you just mentioned. Um, so what do you see that needs to change in the utility workforce to better assist uh, decarbonization? Yeah, the utility workforce is so amazing, right? Like here's a group of people who have um, through federal and private investment over the last 75 years, like developed this backbone of the way that we think about our world, right? Like earlier today, several of the schools that uh, are in town here, I'm in Denver, Colorado, closed early because they didn't have air conditioning, right? And that is like a rare issue, at least here, it's becoming more common. But because we have this great lifeline backbone of energy technology that we can tap into at any time, right? And that's amazing. That workforce has a, has a I think they call it the silver wave, right? That we have a wave of retirements that is upon us um, for our amazing past uh, workers who who put all that together. And so that opens up a bunch of ideas, a bunch of opportunity for new ideas, but also risks a lot of loss of institutional memory, of technical knowledge, right? That nuclear um, aspect of this is really real, right? Like that we have a shortage of nuclear engineers. And how do we how do we think about filling those skill sets is really important. I think too, like reskilling utility linemen we went through, you know, probably a decade ago, a big conversation and standard setting around, you know, do we need off switches for solar so that linemen don't get hurt? And, and we have moved beyond that conversation, thank goodness, right? And so that's sort of a, um, we have a reskilling issue also with our utility folks. And then it goes way beyond utilities, right? We have a massive transformation in the regulatory sector. We have a massive need. I mean, massive need for um, skilled workers to take these, hopefully, you know, if we're strategic about it, good paying jobs, good paying careers to support this clean energy transformation. And there are just a huge number of opportunities if we can, if we can get it right. How 
do you see the makeup of outside of the age thing? How do you see like the intellectual makeup of the of the workforce changing, and um, what are the repercussions going to be on that for decarbonization? Yeah, so I think it's it's a it's a diversity of skill sets and talents, right? Um, I think it's really interesting. So I have a, my degree is in biology. <laughs> and large systems um, scale ecosystems biology. And I love it. I, it's a um, it's an amazing background to have. I think the scientific thinking is really interesting. I am not sure how much of it I use on a daily basis, right? It definitely got me here. And I have other degrees too now because I work at a national lab. And I think that historically we have really counted on very um, academically skilled, right? Like engineers and people with doctorates and physics. And that has been a big chunk of this work. And I think we're entering a transition where we're really going to open the door to a lot of creative people from that are focused on other things, right? Like um, people who have trade skills, and people who are, you know, we have a lot, we had a big resurgence in um, uh, electricians, right? And so we, but we need to have really robust apprenticeship programs. We need to have really robust community college programs. That's a little different than what we also need. But in addition to the kind of like, we need good engineering schools and we need those at, you know, minority serving institutions so that we can have diversity of voice in that field of engineering. That's really important. But I think the makeup, as you mentioned, is really going to shift into more of this sort of trade uh, trade workforce piece. And that's going to be like really complicated for a system that's pretty entrenched, both institutionally and sort of technically. Um, but that's, I mean, those are the types of jobs we need, right? Like we are deploying a lot of new technology into the field. We we need people who can deploy, right? Like they sh they're in your house, they're on the lines, they are um, doing that work. But I, it is exciting to me because I think our education system and our apprenticeship programs are like ready to scale, right? We just have to make sure that we are connecting the right skill sets, right? Like telling that system, the skill sets that we need in a way that they can understand, <laughs> right? And they are hearing they are delivering workforce in a way that we can see that value, right? And it's a it's a communications issue, right? It's a stakeholder um, interaction, relationship development type of set of issues, right? And then it's about investment in Americans. Right. So like just uh, trying to get more IT workers in, basically. Yeah. Uh, right. Lots of IT workers, lots of plumbers, lots of electricians, right? right? Like lots of these fields that I think it's pretty well known that, you know, haven't been huge investments over the last 50 or 60 years, like huge investments haven't been made. That has been really challenging. And now how do we, how do we restart that engine? Right? Yeah. One of the other aspects of what you were talking about was um, the sort of intersections of science, technology, society. Um, so when like planning for a carbon-free energy future, what do you, how can utility and government strategists, um, you know, center that in their, in their planning? Yeah. I mean, to me, and I don't think that my fellow technologists <laughs> always feel the value of this, but I think it's really about 
taking the time and not a lot of time because we're in a hurry. <laughs> we're on the clock here. Okay. Um, but taking the time to really make sure that we are engaging broadly and thinking critically about how we are expecting to do the work, right? Like we need a huge amount of skills. So I was at a Department of Education conference on clean energy workforce last week, and they were talking about this, what sounds like a tangential need, but is actually, I think, a, a really interesting way to think about the world, which is to invest in um, what we used to call in the 90s when I was in high school, your college counselor, right? And now they want to have that be sort of a career counselor and have that be a much broader, right? So that in high school, your choice isn't, you know, you either do a, a job after high school or you go to a four-year college, right? Like it has more like more of the rainbow of pathways that are needed, right? Like maybe you want to go into a union apprenticeship program. Maybe you want to go into community college, like, and, and have that investment in those counselors be to broaden those pathways for people so that we can destigmatize some of the roles that over the last few decades, we really haven't invested in as much as we have in the let's get everybody to go to college route, which is for many, many people, myself included, is a beautiful route, right? Like it's it's a great route. I love it. It's not perfect for like my my brother, right? It's not perfect for a lot of other people. And so how do we think about that that balance? And how do we how do we think about speaking, thinking creatively about solutions that maybe aren't specifically energy solutions, but are going to get us to overcome those things? So centering that change, I think, is a lot about learning how to work with a very diverse set of, and I mean that from a discipline and demographic background perspective, right? Learning to work with a bunch of different people and building and maintaining those relationships in a way that we haven't done that before. You might say, and some of my colleagues would say, it's a social science problem, right? Like it's a societal science challenge. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, the, I mean, wa wages for those uh, non-college jobs would um, need to be increased to match um, increasing costs for that to be uh, for that future to, but that's another podcast. <laughs> well, no, that's yeah, that is another podcast, but I do think that that aligns with, right. We have all these intersectional challenges, right. right? And how are we, how can we like in a world where NREL and the Institute, right. Work in R and D it is, like, how do we, how do we normalize? Like, okay, but like the way that we address this R&D problem is like through this totally other piece, right? And I think, speaking of other podcasts, I think you actually, you also trip into some political issues, not just policy issues, but political issues about what those solutions might be. And that is very tricky, um, especially for the clean tech world, which has historically just sort of been like, yeah, we're the good technology people. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so we really struggle with that whole conversation, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. So uh, one of the other aspects you were talking about uh, uh, that you're looking at decarbonization at the Institute um, was the hard to decarbonize sectors. Uh, you mentioned agriculture, um, the supply chain and transportation. Um, the I want to focus on the on, on those first two because they're not talked about um, a lot on this podcast. So um, when it comes to agriculture, um, and the larger decarbonization project, um, how, you know, what, what role does 
agriculture uh play in our in, in our carbon-free uh energy future how is the bread basket adapting to the new world yeah so it's it is a huge and i think pretty open question and also gets back to this like uh energy sector and agriculture sector language barrier issue that I think is a is a big deal, right? And prioritization, priorities issue. But we had the Institute uh, before my time, I joined in January. Um, but before my time, the Institute had focused on uh, one of the internal investments was in agrivoltaics. So the Institute was an early investor in agrivoltaics, which is the co-benefits of solar and agriculture, which is now um, pretty widely accepted as an opportunity for farmers to have additional, you know, funding in mechanisms as well as for their own power supplies. And it's not, it's a developing field still, but it's somewhat mature. And when we thought about, okay, how, like what other types of agricultural interactions might the energy system have? We, you know, we think about um, all kinds of things, the lab itself, not the Institute necessarily, but the lab itself is working on a lot of like cellular types of agricultural changes and, you know, um, agriculture to products and in clean energy and things like that. So that's a big part of what we're doing in the main part of the laboratory. In the Institute, we're really trying to think about as agriculture, as we electrify, easy to electrify parts of the grid, we are the grid of the system, which is the grid, then we, easy, um, relatively easy, uh, the agriculture pieces as well as the transportation pieces, but the agriculture pieces become a bigger part of that carbon equation. And so how might we think about decarbonizing both from a um, from a how are we farming perspective, right, which is sort of on the agrivoltaics and the electrification of farm equipment and stuff like that. And, and also including like, how do we think entirely differently about the way that we farm and what impacts would that have on the agricultural economy, right? And how do we think about workforce in that vein? And so those are the types of issues that we have really been trying to think about. And we, um, we're we really trying to narrow in on that right now, actually, if anyone's interested in joining us, through a, a series of kind of agricultural decarbonization, prioritization workshops from the clean energy perspective. So we're we're really looking for our university partners and our nonprofit partners and our ag sector and other federal partners to help us figure out how we can direct our own investments to really think about what the next piece that we can do is because we're we're jumping into a moving river here, right? There are tons of people working in this. And the last thing we want to do is use federal investments to not maximize impact, right? So we want to make sure we're doing that. But that's how we're thinking about agriculture right now, sort of on the energy system decarbonization space. But we know there's a whole world of thinking differently about the way that we make food. Absolutely. Absolutely. And relatedly, um, because, you know, you're talking about um, the supply chain and what you what you what you talked about was the supply chain of um, of of clean energy technology. Um, But also a part of that is that the actual like transportation of of goods and you know storage and all of the, and all of that stuff uh itself is a uh targeted area of decarbonization you know all that food all that part of decarbonizing agriculture probably also comes with decarbonizing 
how that how that food gets um, moved around, um, which also ties into the transportation piece as well. But there's 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 even more to it than that. So how how are you looking at the at both the clean tech supply chain and um, the American supply chain in general? Yeah, a lot of our work to date has, a lot of the Institute's work to date has really been on the clean energy supply chain. It's been a lot about um, rare earth metals and common metals, right? And how those are accessed and and how uh, those are delivered (laughs) to the United States or if they're developed in the United States, how that's done. So that's been a lot of the work that we have done in the past. I think a lot of our supply chain work in terms of delivery of American products and efficiency of those supply chains is really getting taken up by this new office in the department, which is called Manufacturing and Energy Supply Chain, I think, MESC is what we call it. And that's part of the Inflation Reduction Act, or maybe, no, it was part of, I'm sorry, it was part of the, um, the bill, the infrastructure law. And it is really looking at both the in manufacturing and then also how we move those supply chains through. So that work is really just developing right now. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of different players to get engaged in that work uh, through the department. And and we're providing, um, the lab is providing a good amount of analytics support, but I think there are a lot of opportunities to think about how how that supply chain moves and efficiency in that supply chain domestically for the delivery of domestic goods. I would also say there's like a a third aspect, and maybe this is what you were alluding to, but an aspect that we've been thinking about a little bit, which is like, what happens when the way we live changes because of climate adaptation, right? Or other aspects. So like, what happens when it's very difficult to, in the event that it is very difficult to get agricultural products, certain agricultural products in the United States, right? Either because of challenges abroad or different growing seasons, things like that, right? And how does that affect energy use patterns? Um, And I think that's a really interesting set of systems change questions that's very difficult to think about. But we have started to sort of think about like, okay, what about the very edges of the energy use patterns and how they change and how can our energy systems models prepare for that, right? Like we, we've we done a lot of retrospective work thinking about the modeling of the drop of solar prices, right? Like not very many models predicted the precipitous drop in or projected the precipitous drop in prices and certainly not very many models predicted COVID. Um, and so, so like how, and the effects of what happened in COVID. But I do think both of those experiences have kind of lent the clean energy industry to really be thinking about these, these edge parameters as not so far on the edge. And how, how can we really, in a balanced way, right, think about those edge parameters and um, do an academic, do a rigorous look at what, some of those outside chance items are for the impacts on the energy system and what we might need for security and resilience in this country. What have some of the outcomes of those analyses been? Well, we don't have them yet. They're still working on it. <laughs> We're okay. so, and like, and we also have to think about like, what are they, right? And as, as soon mm-hmm. as the Institute or NREL says we're working on this, it, I think it, because of the, the wonderful history of the laboratory and the investment that 
we've made as a people in the, the national laboratory system, like how we talk about things and how we say things actually matters. And so if we are to stand here and say like, oh, this is a scenario we're running, we have to we have to be really thoughtful about that because people will interpret that as, oh, this is what science thinks is going to happen. And that's, you know, like, so as we talk about outside chances, we have to be really clear about that. And it's very difficult to model that, right? Like we're improving because of computation and we're improving because of new algorithms that we can use and, and AI is contributing to this. But it's it's still, I mean, modeling under deep uncertainty is a huge area that is a big challenge for not just clean tech, but certainly for clean tech and everyone else. So we just have to be really thoughtful about what even the questions are that we ask, which is how like it's very mundane, but we do workshops. Now the rigors, workshops. Of, the rigors of a government job. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're not really just out there testing stuff out. Right, right, right. Um, so the the last piece and and uh a really really important piece uh uh is the uh, the last piece and a really important aspect uh that you, you you talked about at the top of the of the areas of decarbonization that you're looking at is uh the e equity part so how do we ensure that everyone is brought along on the decarbonization journey and that the you know systemic energy inequities uh currently rampant in our, in our society are not continued in um, the in the grid of the future. You know, you already um, alluded to, you know, some of those about how um, about who has access to um, to clean tech and who receives the, the the most benefits of clean tech, but also things just like energy energy burden as a you know as a portion of your income, uh, which you know areas are targeted for um, for for solar projects and for like publicly funded solar projects and just the, yeah, the general allocation of public funds in general. So I'll, 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 I'll turn it over to you and stop listing stuff. Well, that's a, yeah, those are a lot. We have a lot of problems. Um, we have a lot of challenges and we have, you know, and we did talk about this at the top of the hour when we were talking about utility workforce too. the, this idea that we have an existing system that is both, the envy of the world and also wasn't put together with <laughs> the most you know considerations for equity and we have a we have a number of uh, urban planners at the laboratory who you know are are really thoughtful about how we developed our large systems and they were not done without um you know prioritizing certain communities over others to put it diplomatically. And so the um, when we think about clean energy technology, I think that we've really had an awakening over the last decade or so around, around that inequity that the development of the energy system, as amazing as it is, also sort of is a part of, right? Like that's a part of our history. And we have to think about how we have new technology in a system that is inequitable and what the responsibility of that clean energy is. I would also say that we, you know, historically, um, we've just been trying to make the widget work, right? Like, let's make the widget work and let's make the widget work in different kinds of, um, in different levels of wind and in different levels of sun and with different amounts of geothermal potential. 
And then let's make the widget work and connect it to the grid and make that work. So we come from a very does the widget work perspective. And I think to get at this equity question while still valuing American innovation in R&D, we need to really think about from the very early stages of development, what the potential impacts are of those technologies at scale. Right. So and I think that the department has done the Department of Energy has done a phenomenal job with these community benefits plans. So every dollar that goes out of the department right now is and all of the the um, investment money from the infrastructure laws is has to be in the Inflation Reduction Act needs to include this community benefits plan. So something that says, okay, if your innovation is successful, what are the impacts on workforce? What are the impacts on the equity of the system, the overarching energy system? That's the Justice 40 component for this administration. And then also, what are the um, the pieces that are um, in the more deployment pieces that are like about siting and immediate impacts, right? That I think has opened this door to this conversation about how we even think about science in the clean energy space, right? So how do we think about engaging different voices in that? How do we think about engaging different demographics and different disciplines within science in those teams? I think it's a it's a long haul, right? Like we've been doing science and we've been thinking about the widget as the center of this equation for a really long time. And it is the, and it has been the least politicized part of this, right? You know, does the widget work is typically not a question that people disagree on, like it's working or it's not. <laughs> and so that is an easy question for scientists to kind of address. I think as we move towards centering the impact of those technologies on society and the interaction of those technologies with society, which we have to do if we're going to be able to accomplish our goals of um, the laboratory's goals, clean energy for the world, right? Or this clean energy transformation that we're all talking about. It's it's a shift in how we think about R&D. And that's going to take time. It's going to take relationship building. It's going to take thoughtfulness on all sides, right? And there's degraded trust there that has to be rebuilt. And that that takes time and effort and it takes investment. And so, and I think we are on a good trajectory for that. I think the, I think we were on a good trajectory for that when we started to hear about these societal challenges through this deployment piece that we started to see in sort of 2012, 2014. I think the community benefits plans are a wonderful extension of that work. And I think we just have to figure out how to center impact as opposed to centering, does it work? Yeah, that makes I sense. That, I don't know if that's a great answer, um, but it's the one we've got. <laughs> uh, no, that, no, that 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 that, may, that makes sense. And like, yeah, it's got to ultimately be about like whatever we whatever we build has got to be in service of you know our our communities, our citizens, and um, that making sure that you know that we're creating a world that we can all um that we that, that we can all enjoy yeah i mean isn't that the role of from my perspective isn't that the role of our national laboratories our 17 federally invested national laboratories is really about 
American innovation and benefiting the broadest set of Americans that we can. And so for a long time, that was about tech development, right? And and now I think we're we're thinking about, okay, it's still about technology development. That's still our core role. How do we how do we think about that in the societal context? And I think it's an exciting, it's an exciting opportunity because we have this, not obviously not just at NREL, but across the 17 labs, we have this great infrastructure set up and this great opportunity to um really use these investments in a way that um that can really help sort of the next generation of Americans have that innovation. I agree. That should be the the purpose, the purpose of um this project and all in all our projects. That should be. Yeah. That's what we hope it is. Yes. So I right, get well, a little American I get a little American flag wavy in the back <laughs> sometimes. All right. Well uh Dr. Liz Doris, thank you for uh, coming on our program. Uh, it was a great conversation. Do you have, do you have anything to plug? Um, let's see. I would say I have a little something to plug, which is everyone should check out the American Made Program website, which is American Made uh, Program. AmericanMadeChallenges.org. And that is a place where you can get access to a ton of different competitions that are being run from the department right now. And if you think they don't apply to you, then you are probably incorrect. And you should look again. We really want new entrants in the field. We want people to bring new challenges and new solutions. And uh, that is what I think I'd like to plug. I'll also say that we do an annual meeting every year where we talk about these uh, forward-looking topics. And we would love to have anyone who is interested uh, sign up for our newsletter at jicea.org and come join us at the National Renewable Energy Lab in February. Awesome. And um, we'll make sure to put those websites in the in the description. Um, so yeah, thanks for uh, joining us today and uh, hope you have a great day. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. This has been such a great opportunity for me and for our organization. So we really appreciate it. And uh, we're continue to be good listeners of the podcast. So thanks for all the great content. <laughs>